History, according to Luke 16, Part 1, spoken by Pastor Clayton Chan. When it comes to money, I've been called many different things. Economical, thrifty, cautious. But what people really mean is I'm cheap. Right? I like getting the best value in my purchases. I'll always look at the cost per unit rather than the total cost because I want to make sure that I'm getting the best deal possible. Not everyone is like me. My wife is certainly not like me. When we were dating, it used to drive me nuts when she would buy something without figuring out if it was a good deal or not. For instance, one time we had planned to hang out after work. We were dating. And so I went over to her parents' house where she lived at the time, and I just waited for her. And lo and behold, when she came, she had a surprise for me. And so she reaches out of her bag and pulls out two bags of chips. Right? That's the way to my heart. I'm truly, I am a fatty at heart, and so I like food. And so she pulls out these two bags of chips, one being my favorite flavor, Lay's wasabi flavored. So if you guys remember Lay's wasabi, it was a limited edition batch. You couldn't find it everywhere. And so being the thoughtful and generous person she was, she went out of her way to go get me those chips. But have you ever had one of those moments where you just have wanted to take back what you said? I think men do this more often than women. We say things without thinking. And so at that moment, I smiled. I grabbed those bags of chips. And then I said, why did you buy these? We could have bought a whole bag, a big bag of chips at the grocery. And so for me, there was no gratefulness. There was no appreciation for her sweet gesture. Instead, that day, she received a lecture on value. <laughs> My unhealthy view of money caused me to be ungrateful at her thoughtfulness. Thankfully, she didn't break up with me that day. And because of that, I am a much better person. I've grown in this area. I've become a better person, a more generous person because of her. I've learned that money isn't everything, but if we don't have a healthy relationship with it, it can do damage in our lives. The reason why we need to be careful about how we handle money is because it has the capacity to rule over us and destroy our lives. They say the two biggest reasons or the two biggest topics that married people fight over are in-laws and money. Money can cause rifts between family members. I've seen a brother and sister be teared apart because of money issues. I've seen son and father fight over money. The dangerous part about money is that we don't see how much of an impact it has in our lives. But God knows and that's why Jesus speaks about money more than any other topic in the Bible. 25% of Jesus' teachings were about money. And I don't think it was because it was more important than the others. But I believe that Jesus spoke about money so often because it is the hardest area of our lives to submit to him. It is the hardest area to be obedient in. Today, we're going to be taking a look at what Jesus has to say about money Specifically answering the question, how do we experience true financial freedom? How do we experience true financial freedom? And so to take a look at that, we're going to read from Luke chapter 16, verse 1 through 15. So Luke chapter 16, 1 through 15, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. If not, uh, you, I think you have apps for it or even look on screen as we read through it. Chapter 16, verse 1. 
Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. There's no other passage like this in the Bible. Nowhere else does Jesus praise a man for his dishonesty or for his worldliness. Scholars say that this is probably the most difficult parable in the Bible because people don't know what to make of this. How could God be praising this worldly man and using him as an example for his disciples? Scholars have come up with many interpretations on what Jesus was saying or what Jesus' point in all of this was. But this is where we have to remember this is a parable. A parable is a story that illustrates a lesson. And so not every detail fits in perfectly. Not everything translates to our lives. But we have to think, what is Jesus' point in this parable? In this parable, a rich man calls out his manager for mismanaging his accounts. Right? Note that this parable, in this parable, the rich man is seen as a good person. At other times in the Bible, we see that the rich have been given a bad name. We can remember that rich young ruler who goes to Jesus and says, how can I in inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, sell everything and follow me. And sadly, we see that he walks away. We see that Matthew was a wealthy tax collector and he was seen as a traitor and sinner. Yet in this parable, this rich man was honorable. And we see that because although the manager had mismanaged his accounts, he doesn't jail the man. Instead, he has generosity and mercy for him and simply just fires him. After being fired, the manager immediately tries to find a solution. There's no time to process his feelings. There's no time to think, how did this happen? No, the manager, knowing that he's too weak for physical labor, 
and too proud to beg comes up with a solution. Being the shrewd and clever man that he is, he calls the stewards, he call, the steward calls his master's debtors one by one and starts reducing their debts to gain favor from them and so that they would remember him in his time of need. The first debtor, he owes 900 gallons of olive oil, which equates to three years' salary for an average day uh, wage earner. The manager reduces this by half. The second debtor owes 1,000 bushels of wheat, which equates to about eight to nine and a half years of salary. And again, he reduces it, this time to 800 bushels of wheat. These are not small reductions. These are great reductions. They are generous reductions. And then at this point, Jesus weighs in. He says that the master commends the dishonest manager because he has acted shrewdly. This is not an endorsement to be dishonest for gain. Jesus isn't highlighting the dishonesty of this man, but he's highlighting that he is wise enough to plan for his future. Although his methods of gain were dishonest and deceitful, the manager was wise enough to invest in what mattered. But how many of us are using our money wisely? Many of us have an unhealthy relationship with money. There are those who believe that money is evil. You associate money and wealth with, with uh, greed and dishonesty and self-interest. And part of that might be because of the church. Maybe it wasn't explicit, but implicitly, it seems like the church has a negative attitude towards money and wealth. We believe that the way to Christ and holiness is to give, out, to give away everything and to seek and to be poor. We look at the rich as greedy and the poor as pure in heart. The church has not done a good enough job teaching about a biblical view of money. Money is not evil. And to think that money is evil is to forget that God created it. God is the creator of all things. Whether he creates directly or indirectly, everything exists because of him. And when we forget that, we forget that God creates with purpose. When God created the world, it wasn't random. Instead, he placed thought into every single detail. Everything that God spoke into existence had a purpose. The trees and plants produce oxygen so that we can breathe and live. The sun was created to give light and to heat the earth. Even the things that we hate most have a purpose. I hate spiders, but they have a purpose. Without spiders, the insect population would, would explode and we would be swarmed by mosquitoes, which I actually hate worse than spiders. <laughs> God has a purpose in all of his creation. Money also has a purpose. It's a tool. It's a resource that God has entrusted to us to use to bless others. What determines if money is good or evil is our attitude towards it. It can be good when we use it to further God's kingdom. It's good when we use it to be generous to people. It's good when we show others that God cares for them through our resources. Money can do a lot of good, but it also has the ability to do a lot of damage. And one way that it can harm us is if it has power over us. For many of us, financial freedom means not having to worry about money. It means that we can live comfortably and we don't have to think or stress out about it. 
We like to think that having money brings freedom because once we've hit a certain level of wealth or a standard of living, then we don't have to ask ourselves the question, can I afford this anymore? But if we use this definition of financial freedom, I don't think we will ever truly be financially free. Because the problem is, we always want more. And wanting to have freedom to go out and enjoy a lavish meal or go on the nicest vacations or even wear the trendiest clothes, have we become a slave to money? You wake up and head off to work simply for a paycheck. You don't love the work you do. You don't love that it takes you away from your family, but you continue to do it because it provides for a certain level, a standard of living for your family. I believe that many of you feel like life is a grind today because instead of allowing money to bless you and to bless others, you've allowed it to enslave you. And I think there are two ways that money enslaves us. The first is through greed, and the second is through debt. Greed is not a rich problem. It's a human problem. People who have much can be greedy just as much as people who have very little can be greedy. Greed is, not what greed is what causes us to love money, but the root of all of it is the love of oneself. And I'm not talking about a healthy self-love. Right? The Bible does say that the greatest commandment is to love your Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And what's the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbors as you love yourself. We can't love others unless we first know how to love ourselves. But there's a difference between healthy self-love and then there's a, another type of love which is damaging. To love ourselves over somebody else, to love ourselves and value ourselves above anyone else is not healthy. In 2010, two psychologists at the University of Warwick did a study on happiness and income. And what they discovered was that happiness is determined not by absolute wealth, but relative wealth. They found that happiness has less to do with the amount of your income, but more to do with how your income compares to others. How many times have you caught yourself thinking, man, it would be nice to have a bigger house, or man, it would be nice to have a luxury car, only because a friend or a neighbor has one? We aren't content with what we have because we see that our neighbors have more than us. And it's this desire for more that leads us into debt. Some of us have accumulated a huge amount of debt and it's causing, all, causing us a lot of stress and keeping us from actually living in freedom. And I'm not talking about good debt. There's good debt like buying a house or student loans, but consumer debt caused by using our credit cards on things that really aren't that necessary. If you find yourself in debt, it's an indication that you are living above your means. There's a standard of living that you desire and you're willing to pay and to spend money that you don't have on it. If you find yourself defining financial freedom by this world standard, you won't find it. You're always going to want more. But there is a way to experience true financial freedom. Financial freedom in a biblical sense isn't about how much or how little we have. To be financially free means that money does not rule over us. It means that we rule money and use it the way that God intended, to bless others. Financial freedom is not a myth. It is possible. But it requires us to look at money as a tool 
that serves us, not that it serves, not that we serve it. So the question today is, how can we experience true financial freedom? How can we experience true financial freedom? And I have three ways that we can experience it. The first, be wise and value what is eternal. Be wise and value what is eternal. We need to be wise in investing in the kingdom of God rather than things of this world. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. You can know something, but unless you know how to apply it correctly, it means nothing. We know that the things of this world don't last. We know eventually everything will waste away, and yet it's still so hard to give up these worldly things. It takes wisdom to apply what we know to be true. Jesus commends the manager in the parable for his shrewdness and wisdom. In verse 8, Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is saying how foolish we are. How foolish we are as disciples. How foolish we are as Christians. How foolish we are as believers compared to the unbeliever, to the worldly. The unbeliever knows to prepare for the future. The future for an unbeliever is this lifetime. And they will prepare for this lifetime. But for us as believers, what is our future? What is it that we can look forward to? When the manager reduces the bill, he's being deceitful in reducing the master's return to gain friendship and community. God is not praising the man for his dishonest ways. But the point here is that even a worldly man knows how to be wise and plan for his future. But for us as believers, what is our future? What is our future reality? It's heaven. What's the one thing that will continue with us into heaven? What's the one thing that we will carry into heaven? It's not things. It's souls. It's people. It's people who have come to know Jesus Christ the one thing that will continue with us into eternity are other people. We need to invest in the expansion of God's kingdom in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to have a passion for the lost and want them to be found. Pastor Peter spoke about our need as Christ followers to be passionate about the lost. It's about wanting people to enter into a relationship with Jesus but also to see the kingdom of God reign here on earth. How? Through the end of injustice and oppression. Last week, Pastor Peter mentioned one way of doing this is that we need to get to know the stories of our brothers and sisters and stand with them in their suffering. But another way that we can do this is to use our resources and wealth to make sure that suffering and oppression end in our lifetime. We need to put our money where our mouth is. But how can we do that unless we are being wise in how we spend our money? Do you make financial decisions that will allow you to invest in the kingdom of God? Do you count the cost of what it may, you may be missing out on due to the way that you budget and spend your money? The wisdom of the manager in the parable 
was his ability to plan. He planned for the future. To him, the most important thing was his physical well-being in life. But how much more important is it for us to invest in our spiritual well-being in the kingdom of God if we were created for heaven? Have you ever thought to include in your budget a category of giving? What if we were to be intentional about giving to God's kingdom instead of looking at it as an option if we have money left over in the month? What blessing of God may you be missing out on because of the way that you budget and spend your money? Being wise with our money is to align. Being wise with our money is to set up ourselves in a way where we will not be hindered to be used by God. It's to set up our lives so that we can be a blessing to others. When I decided to become a pastor and to go into ministry, it was one of the difficult, most difficult decisions of my life. I wrestled with it. It wasn't a decision that I came up with overnight, but something that I had to pray through and discern about because I knew that deciding to become a pastor would change the trajectory of my life. I was a sophomore at the time, and my intent and my goal was to become a doctor. I thought, you know what? God can use me as a doctor. I can be a pediatrician. I can go on missions. But he had another plan for me, and I had to count the cost. I had to look at what this meant for my life. And so I remember praying, and I said, God, if this is what you really want from me, then I'm going to go full force into it. Unless you tell me that there's something else for me, everything I do, every decision I make will be to get me to the point of becoming a pastor and to go into ministry. And so one of the hardest decisions I made was to actually leave uh, the school that I was attending. I was attending Boston University, and I loved that school. I loved the people that I met there. I loved the church community that I found there. I was doing well in school. But it just didn't make sense to me that I would take out loans and incur more debt just to graduate and go on to ministry. And so I made the decision, I'm going to transfer out, go to the state school, save money, so that I would not be hindered in ministry, so that I would not be hindered from doing what God was calling me to. And I can honestly say, looking back, the only reason why, or one of the biggest reasons why I'm here at Metro today is because of that decision. Amen. I was able to take a half-time position here, to start out as a half-time position here, because I didn't have too much debt. But what if I had debt? What if I had all these costs that I had to pay for? I don't know if I could have started as a half-time employee. To be financially free is to make your life's decisions based on God's will and not what you can afford. We need to be wise to use our money to invest in eternity. And part of that wisdom is making sure that you have enough money to actually invest in God's kingdom. The second way we can experience true financial freedom is to be generous towards people, not things. Be generous towards people, not things. When it comes to generosity, you don't choose to be generous. Living in America puts us in a very unique position where all of us are wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world, we are wealthy. And a byproduct of that wealth is generosity. The question isn't whether we are generous or not. The question is, who are we generous towards? Are you generous towards yourself? Or are you generous towards others? Who is the object of your generosity? Either you can spend your money 
and resources on yourself to buy you things to satisfy your desires, or you can be generous towards others by using your resources to bless them. Are you trying to make your world a better place, or are you trying to make the world a better place? At Metro, we believe in transformation. We believe that we are transforming agents. And one of the ways that happens is God transforms our world so that we can transform the world. But are we being faithful in transforming the world around us? In verse 10, Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus explains our possessions, our resources, and our wealth, and how we use them here on earth is a test run for eternity. How can we be trusted with more if we can't even be faithful with what we've been given? God is trusting us to be generous with what he's given to us. One way that we can do, be generous is through tithing. Do you understand that when you tithe, when you give offering, that you're actually blessing others? It's not just a requirement that we have to give 10%, but your tithes actually go into having a service like this. Without your tithes, without your offerings, we wouldn't be able to have a praise team or we wouldn't be able to have a space. We wouldn't have a place or a time where, you, where people could be blessed. Part of your tithing is the blessing of others. And we can thank you and your giving for that. But maybe it's giving to the building fund. Our hope at Metro is that one day we would have a community center that we could bless this community and make an impact in Englewood. But it doesn't just stop at Metro. The kingdom of God is bigger than Metro. There's other great organizations that you can give to. And there's even small acts of great generosity. Maybe being generous for you means taking out or treating your coworker or neighbor to lunch. Maybe it means buying groceries for a struggling neighbor. The point is, it doesn't matter how big or small your generosity is. The point is to be generous. In the parable, the manager was generous. He used the master's resources to gain favor and friendship from the debtors, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't generous. Right? When we think about our wealth and money, it's not ours. It's what God has given to us. When we are generous, we use what God has given to us to bless others. And in the same way, in the story, the manager was using the master's resources to bless others, to bless the debtors, to reduce their debt. Just because he was able to gain friends from his action doesn't take away from his generosity. He used his platform. He used his resources. He used what was given to him to make a difference. And another result of being generous is that people gravitate towards you. Right? The natural result of being a generous person is that people actually like you. People want to be around you. When was the last time you met somebody who was generous who was lonely? Or the inverse of that. How, uh, when's the last time you met someone who was really greedy but had a multitude of friends? I believe that one blessing that comes from being generous is community. People want to be around generous people. People want to know that they're valued and cared for. And one of the ways that you can show that is through your resources and generosity. 
for two years, my wife and I, Esther, lived in this tiny apartment, this cozy apartment in Cliffside Park. It's about uh, 400 square feet. As you can imagine, there wasn't much space to do anything. We literally would stay in our bedroom for most of the time because there's nowhere else to go. But the one good thing about it was that it was clean and convenient. And so it was convenient because we had a washer and dryer. We didn't have to go anywhere. It was convenient because right outside the door, there was a bus stop so my wife could go to work in the city. And for me, it was only a 15-minute drive to the metro office. And so recently, just this past uh, month, we actually moved into a bigger apartment. And my world was blown. Like moving from a 400-square-foot apartment to 1,100 square foot, I didn't know what to do with the space. So right now, we're just trying to figure out how do we fill it up. But I think about it, and I, think, and I, ask, I ask myself the question, what took so long? Right, what took me so long to move into a bigger space? And the reason why was because of my own selfishness, my own, la- my own lack of generosity. For me, I just looked at a house or living in this apartment as a way to save money. Like, where else can you get a one-bedroom apartment for under $1,000 with a washer and dryer? And so for me, I just wanted to stay there for as long as possible so that I can save money, so that I could have the things that I want, or even buy a house later on. But what I've realized in moving to this bigger house or this bigger apartment is that my resources have been given to me to be a blessing to others. It's nice having a bigger apartment, but it's not just so that we can live and sleep there. What I've realized was it's a place of ministry. I'm able to invite my youth group kids or even my youth group volunteers for a night of fellowship. It's a place where in the future I want to have UG groups come and build community that way. For me, my house is not just a place for us to rest our head. It's a place where ministry can happen and community can be built. Generosity leads to financial freedom. When you can learn to be generous towards others, money starts to lose its grip over you. In being generous, we no longer have to look at money as a way to increase our standard of living, but we look at money to increase our standard of giving. When you start to look at your resources and wealth as a means of giving, it changes the way you view money. Generosity separates what is essential from the non-essentials. Generous people give of what they have to others, but greedy people spend what they don't have on themselves. Let me pose this question. When have you ever seen a generous person go into debt? I've never seen it. Because the generous people give of what they have, but it's the greedy people who spend what they don't have on themselves. The third way where we can experience true financial freedom is to worship the one true God with our resources. How we view and spend our money is a worship issue. Jesus says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus makes it clear. We were created to worship, and that worship is to be exclusive. We have to decide who our master is. Will it be money, or will it be God? We have to realize, or look, or recognize what is the greatest priority in our lives. 
We have to look at what does money actually represent to us? What are we seeking from it? I think some of us are seeking security. You believe that having a certain level of wealth will keep you comfortable and safe. And so you're saving so that when you hit a rainy day or all your rainy days will be covered. Some of you are seeking status from money. You want to be seen in a certain way. You want to live in a nice neighborhood, have a nice house, have the newest phone, or even wear a certain type of clothing because you want the world to see that you're important. You want the world to know how successful you are. You've made something of your life. Some of you are seeking your identity from money. You define yourself by how much you make or how much power or influence you have. You want people to see you as capable and strong. But by chasing after these things, have you made money your God? Has money become an idol in your life? When we look to money to satisfy our needs, we find that we are a slave to it. But when we look to Jesus to satisfy our needs, there is freedom. The good news is that with Jesus Christ, we are to live a life of abundance and freedom. The cross of Jesus Christ changes the situation. The cross of Jesus Christ changes everything. Everything that you could ever want or desire, you have because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Think about status, identity, security. You have the most high God, the guy who is in control of everything, watching your back. He will provide for every one of your needs. Think about status. Instead of chasing after prestige and wanting to find yourself as important, you have status. Your status is as the, as the prince and princess of the most high God. You are important. How do you know that? Because Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. The person of infinite worth gave his life to show you how worthy and valuable you are. There is freedom with Christ. There is freedom in knowing that everything that you have, everything you could ever desire, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it because Jesus Christ has given it to you freely. It is the grace of God. If we chase those things from money, you know what? We're going to have to work for it. We're going to have to chase after. We're going to have to put in our hours for it. But if we chase after Jesus and accept what he's done for us, we understand that God's grace is enough for us. We can freely worship and serve God because we have everything we could ever desire in Jesus because it was God's grace in our lives. To worship God is more than just singing some songs. Every aspect of life is worship. Your finances, your decisions, your obedience, your allegiance. It's to be wholly devoted to God. To worship is to love him so much that you are wholly devoted to him. It means that you will submit to his ways and desires for your life. It is the active and intentional aligning of our desires to God's desires. It means that we want to make God happy. It means that we will invest in the kingdom of God rather than on ourselves. To worship God is to love him and serve him. And the best way that we can do that is to be obedient to him. For the last few months, my mom has been dealing with this difficult situation. A few months ago, she gets this notice and she finds out that she's being sued because her property or her responsibility in this land was, was contaminated. 
Now, the most difficult thing for me as I've been walking with her and processing uh, through what's been happening is that for me, it seems like a sense of injustice. It just doesn't seem fair because my mom has nothing to do with this property. The reason why it got put on my mom was because my aunt or my mom's sister, she used to have a dry cleaner on this property. And because she didn't have any credit, my mom stepped in and said, you know what, you can use my credit. I'll be the co-signer for your lease. And now that my aunt is someplace that we don't know, we haven't sp spoken to her, we don't know where she is, it was easier for the lawyers to go after my mom and sue her. And so it hurts. It pained me to see my mom suffer in this way. It pained me to see that they were trying to get hundreds of thousands of dollars off of my mom when she had no part in any of this. And after many phone calls and many tears and many just prayers and many just conversations, the one thing that stood out in the midst of it all was that my mom is a faithful believer. She does not allow money to be her God. Amen. And the way I know that is, despite her situation, despite her financial struggles, she continues to worship God. She continues to call me and says, Clay, have you been praying enough? You know, you're a pastor. You should be praying. That should be your number one priority. You should pray without ceasing. Have you been praying? So I understand she worships God. She knows what the priority is. She's been generous. Although she has been betrayed by her family member, she continues to give to the family. She continues to support them. And some people may say, hey, that's not wise. You don't have much. Why are you giving something that you don't have? But I believe it is being wise. She's investing in what matters most. She's being a blessing to others. She's being a blessing to her church. She's being a blessing to her friends. She's being a blessing to her family. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. But you can serve God with your money. Metro, who is your master? God has given us an abundant source of resources and wealth. But are you using it to be faithful in blessing others? True financial freedom is not achieved by having more. True financial freedom is to recognize that money is a tool to be used to bless others. And when we don't recognize that, the alternative is it's an idol that we, be, that we worship. Metro, will you allow God to lead you to a place of freedom? Financial freedom is possible. Don't let money rule over you. Be wise and value what is eternal. Be generous towards people and not things. And worship the one true God with your resources. God is calling each and every one of us to be generous. Will we do that today? Will you pray with me?